you're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for U.S. international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. So it's been a while since we last spoke about country-by-country reporting, but since then, the little filing that could has really come up in the world. Joining me to discuss are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an international tax principal from our Detroit office, Doug Palms, a principal from our Washington National Tax Office, John Darahanasian, also from WNT, and the U.S. ESG reporting lead for tax, and Federica Porcari, a Washington National Tax Manager and returning futures guest. Thanks, Kim. And I know we've talked about C by C on previous podcasts, but it just seems like it's the gift that keeps on giving because there's so many changes <laughs> happening here. So good times, right? Let's start with you, JD. So what's the latest on public C by C reporting? Yeah, so I think last time we spoke, the EU had adopted the directives and was mandating public C by C disclosure for calendar year companies. We were generally talking calendar 2025 that would be subject to reporting due in 2026. Now it's on the local member states to adopt legislation, and they're doing that. Romania was first out of the gate. And interestingly, they did not adopt the date that was in the directive and indeed decided to early adopt. And we are looking, again, in calendar year terms, we're looking at years beginning January 1st, 2023. So right now, being subject to reporting under the Romanian rules. (laughs) So this is the dynamic that we see over and over again, right? I mean, we look at an EU directive and there's a temptation to think, oh, (laughs) the EU, it's just one big place. And this is going to be one big set of rules. And we have a tendency to uh, forget that the EU is actually a lot of little places. And this is just a minimum standard. And so now this is going to come back to us again. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Great. So what does this mean for U.S.-based multinationals? What this really means is that U.S.-based multinational with qualifying presence in EU member states may have to follow a slightly different set of rules. So let's maybe set the table a little bit. So can you remind us, I think there was a disparity as a general matter between the way EU and non-EU parented groups were handled under these rules? Yeah, I would say yes, Kim. When you have an EU-based multinational group, that group will only have to follow the rules in the ultimate parent country. Also, reporting obligation will only kick in once the country of the parent will implement the rules. So if you have, let's call it German ultimate parent, and they have within the group a French subsidiary, I think that means we're basically waiting for Germany to generate some rules before they have to do anything, right? That's right. But if you are not within the EU, so let's say UK or US, and you have operating entities within the EU, then wherever those operating entities are, if there is implementing legislation there, they have to respond to it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's an ordering rule 
that allows you to figure out only filing in one jurisdiction. So you're not disclosing in all no, it, 28, but no, isn't and, there? And it's, is, is, this is exactly the point. To the extent that the report is published on the non-EU parent website, and the parent picks one of the subsidiaries or one of the branches to publish the report on the local business register, like the obligation is satisfied. The big issue, though, comes up when different member states decide to implement different options allowed by the directive. I think here is where the big difference comes up. Because non-EU groups will always have to follow the stricter rules to satisfy, to make sure that their report report satisfies the requirements set in the different countries in which they operate, in which they have subsidiaries or branches. Which means that if you get allowances and benefits in one jurisdiction that do not exist in another jurisdiction's rules... At the end of the day, you're not going to get those benefits because you're playing to the strictest. And it also means that over the course of time, every single time your jurisdictions come on that matter to you, you might have to change the formulation of what your disclosure looks like. Yeah. And that sets up such a distortion between what you do if you're an EU-parented group and what you do if you're not an EU-parented group. You have a harder go, I think, by a long shot if you're not an EU-parent. But there are nuances under the Romanian rules, are there not, Federica, that kind of put paid to that? Yep, yeah. Romania, in fact, uh, went beyond the provision of the directive and their current uh, legislation has implemented, actually creates an obligation even for Romanian entities, but this is irrespective of the residence of the parent. So going back to your example, Kim, of the German-based multinational group, let's say in this case with a subsidiary in France and in Romania, to the extent that that presence in Romania is a qualifying presence, even if Germany has not implemented public country-by-country reporting rules, that subsidiary will have a reporting obligation in Romania based Uh. on the current wording of the legislation. In the same way as uh, the U.S. parented group. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Got it. As we're thinking about how difficult this might be for compliance purposes from a U.S. perspective, what are we looking at from a penalty perspective? What happens if I get this wrong? The directive just leaves the member state to implement monetary penalties. But in this case, I think the worst penalty is the public opinion, because this is all going to be public available. Yeah. Wasn't there some kind of auditor obligation as well? Yeah, the auditor obligation is, there's two questions they have to ask, right? Does this company have, uh, are they subject to the EU public CYC requirements, yes or no? If yes, they have to make sure that the company has indeed followed through on their obligation to prepare and publish a public CYC report. That's what's in the, the body of the directive itself. Interestingly, the white paper to the directive that was written years ago really leaves it to the public to audit the C by C. The other question here is, even though your auditor doesn't legally have a huge burden here, they're not legally required to audit your C by C report, what are professional standards going to say? If you put on your C by C report, I make a billion dollars in France, 
when in reality your local stat reports say you make ten thousand dollars in France, your auditor is going to have something to say about that. Just so a whole new level of questions and discussion yeah. and Correct. reconciliation and otherwise. They probably still need to get to the point where they can say it's reasonable. There's going to have to be some duty to at least reconcile it back to the financials. They have to make sure that you're not saying anything out of step with what it is actually in audited financials. I would expect that over the course of time, you're going to get conflation. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? What's going on outside of the EU? In Europe, we've seen other non-EU member countries also show an interest in public CBIC reporting. Years ago, HM Treasury was actually given by Parliament the ability to write these regulations. They just said, we don't want to do this alone. We're going to go along with the international community on this. Norway has made similar sentiments. Their government has said we are interested in public CBIC reporting. They also said we're going to wait for the international community to move along. On some level, at least within the EU, the international community has moved along, right? And John, also, uh, let's not forget about Australia. So in October 2022, Australia came up with a proposal in their federal budget for public country-by-country reporting. We don't have details. We are just expecting a full disclosure, not like in the EU. And let's see, because in their proposal, so the expected effective date is going to be 2024 for companies. So beside the EU, we have to look for other countries as well. So it sounds a little similar then to what's going on in the U.S. as well, right? We've had some various proposals come through on the U.S. side, I believe. We have. There's been a couple of proposals kicking around Congress for years now. The most recent one, the Disclosure of Tax Havens and Offshoring Act actually passed in the House, didn't go anywhere in the Senate, and I would imagine that bill is actually dead. But that's right, Courtney, it would have required basically taking your Action 13 non-public C-by-C and attaching it to your 10K, so full C-by-C disclosure. Again, I don't think that's going anywhere anytime soon. But at the same time, we are seeing other proposals for more limited disclosure, and I think those do have some real teeth, most specifically Um, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, FASB. They have a project ongoing right now to improve income tax disclosures. I think in this case, improvement means more transparency. What they're really looking at is having SEC registrants effectively take their income tax disclosures and break it out a little bit. Again, it's it's a work in progress at FASB. We don't even have a draft proposal yet. I think we'll see that in the next few months. It's a huge bummer. I just want to say, okay, folks trying to get that thing done, that's always. (laughs) I know, exactly. It's like, oh, let's not crayon that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And lest we think that this is just about reporting, there are some Pillar 2 implications as well. And we've known this is coming. And I think today is the day that we're going to talk about it being here. Yes, we've been talking about the new developments for country by country in terms of public reporting. But in the Pillar 2 area, country by country reporting is taking on prominence again because of the transitional country by country safe harbor that was released at the end of last year that would apply for the first few years when Pillar 2 goes into effect for many jurisdictions, which is 2024. The safe harbor would allow multinational groups to use this country by country to make the determinations for the safe harbor for their 2024, 2025, and 2026 tax years. 
we've definitely had folks that have been sitting around and waiting for the safe harbors from a BEP perspective. And now I can go use my C by C. I'll do the math. I'm out. Yeah. And this isn't the first time we've heard about some kind of reliance on the country by country report for pillar two purposes. We've got it, what, for scoping and basic definitions or basic concepts. That's correct. And I think that's why the safe harbor was developed by the working group. There may be some differences around the edges, but just on a broad basis, these calculations are very similar and use the same source data. And so they were comfortable for the first few years to allow this information to be used that's more readily available. And as you say, was already being considered to help multinational groups to see if they were in scope. So just to level set, the safe harbor itself isn't a transitory thing. It's just the ability to use CYC data to satisfy it. That's the transitory part, right? So taxpayers can use CYC data to effectively test out of low-risk jurisdictions in terms of compliance obligations under GLOBE. Exactly. And, okay, so what are the details? Yeah, great question. First of all, it should be noted that there's three tests that you could use to meet the safe harbor. One is a de minimis test, and that looks to whether the multinational group has revenue, and again, we use the country-by-country data, of less than 10 million euro before income taxes. Which is not a lot. Really little companies. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right, yeah. Really little companies that are really big companies. That's exactly right. It's not going to help too many. And similarly, there is something called the routine profits test that looks to whether the amount of income for a profit or loss for the jurisdiction is equal to or less than the substance-based income exclusion amount, which is the substance-based carve-out based on percentage of payroll tangible property. If, If you take that amount and if your income is below that amount, that's another way you can get out looking at your country by country data. Again, not going to be very common or there's not much to say about that. The third test is the one that I think we should focus on, and that's a simplified effective tax rate test. And that's where it gets interesting because now you can use your country by country data to do the traditional figuring out your effective tax rate in that percentage, it changes over this safe harbor period. It starts off at 15%, just like the pillar two standard rate. But in the later years of the safe harbor period, it goes up to 16 and 17% as a safe harbor to keep that in mind. But nonetheless, what makes it attractive is that it's a much more simplified version of the ETR test where you more simply take your current and deferred taxes off your country by country data. And for that purposes, you would carve out any taxes that are not covered taxes or that relate to uncertain tax positions. But for the most part, you take your current and deferred taxes and you divide that by your Profit before taxes, again, taking that from your country by country data. But what's different here is for your profit, you're not going to make all those adjustments that the many, many pages of rules and commentary for Pillar 2 provide. So it's a much simpler computation. Now, the positive is that it keeps it simpler. The negative is that a lot of those adjustments were helpful adjustments in terms of the number that you come up with. So it's a trade-off for simplicity versus having a denominator 
that is going to be larger without the adjustments, making it a bit harder to hit the 15%. I think the safe harbor is a bit of relief that in many cases, multinational groups will have the option of doing the simpler computation that will carry them for a few years while they get their systems in order and ready for the full implementation of Pillar 2. Yeah, clients on my side were really, really waiting for this, right? Yeah. It's interesting now as we think about our country by country and how important it is, it sounds like really getting into that last bucket of exceptions in the safe harbor Maybe Federica, for you, what are we seeing as we're talking with folks about what they've actually got in their C by C? I mean, obviously now all taxpayers, they need to pay a lot more attention to how they prepare and build the C by C. The OECD has been releasing guidance over these years, but some flexibility has always been allowed. Now, we are expecting a last round of guidance in the coming months following the consultation that happened in 2020. And because of Pillar 2, we will likely see a little bit more stricter rules in determining all the data points on the CBC. But because now the CBC is going to be used to determine the amount of taxes. I do think that there are a lot of line items where there are differences between what is acceptable for GAAP, possibly because historically those items have been treated as non-material. And so because they're conceptually close and maybe they're non-material, either the rules have allowed some flexibility with respect to them or taxpayers, as a practical matter, have not necessarily gone back to scrub them out. But as you're looking at it, this becomes a tax return, not just an information return. Yeah, and tax returns have to be right, right? Whereas the information return, you have a little bit more wiggle room. Reality is, right, we've been doing this now for a number of years, and what's been the questions around it? How many people are coming to us around our our C by C form, right? So now I think the relevance of this form just becomes much more important. I actually have an example of a client for uh, income tax paid. So when it comes to big uh, assessment and interest paid for accounting purposes, they are accounted in income tax paid. So they were asking for C by C, should Mm. we take the big chunk of interest out of the account or should we not? Right. Now it's fine because if GAP allows you to keep it there, it's fine for C by C purposes. But now we need to see with the next round of guidance that are going to be released, I guess, soon, now that the safe harbors are out, I'm pretty sure that all this flexibility won't be allowed anymore because I don't think that for Pillar 2 we can consider interest uh, as tax. It's not going to be covered tax. It needs to be a covered tax to be in the safe harbor. I think we've always said to people, you know, you need to think particularly about your public C by C as a minimum. You know, I mean, we talk about the minimum standard. It's like, well, this is also a minimum standard for taxpayers. They only ask you for a relatively abbreviated list of data points, but, you know, that's your starting point. The nice thing here, if there is a nice thing, is that where you need to develop verbiage for the public C by C, some of that I think you can likely roll into your table three explanations for the private C by C. I think particularly to the extent that you don't 
like how things are looking or you need some additional explanation. And as we get deeper into pillar two developments, it could be that it's worth real money. So I think having a good story around pressure points is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. You raise a really good point, Kim, that in the past, gathering this data and reporting it was reporting exercise, but maybe wasn't as critical to try to get everything right or then a lot of resources on presenting everything correctly. But between the public presentation of this information in many cases, and now this availability of the safe harbor, which the OECD guidelines for the safe harbor make it clear that if a country just deems that a constituent entity in a jurisdiction or its group in a jurisdiction has not reflected in its country-by-country reports data that coincides with reality or reflects accurate numbers for that group, then that country is allowed to disallow the use of the safe harbor. And this use of the safe harbor, I should have said it, it's determined on a country-by-country basis. So you may be able to use the safe harbor in some countries, but not others, depending on the information that you have. So it's important to really focus on that. And if you don't qualify to use the safe harbor in an early year, you can't go in a future year and start to use it. If you've used the regular Pillar 2 globe calculation in a year, then you're not able to use the safe harbor in the future. So the stakes are high to get it right in the early years from the get-go because to the extent that you want to rely on the safe harbor, you you do need to have your country-by-country information aligned. And another reason that you might need to revisit it is because the safe harbor guidelines tell you which financial statements you are supposed to use for the safe harbor if your ultimate parent entity files a consolidated global statement that includes the country that you're using the safe harbor in, you're supposed to use that statement. If that country is not included in the global consolidated financial of the ultimate parent entity, then you look to whether a good GAAP or IFRS qualified statement has been filed in that particular jurisdiction. And then there are rules that what happens if you don't even have that, but it's a hierarchy of what you should use. And that may or may not have been what was used in the original country-by-country country report. So it may be, need to be updated to be based on the correct information. There's a lot of reasons you may need to revisit your country-by-country country reporting, but there are great incentives here to do that. The original private country-by-country country report, the thought was, to a certain extent, let's try and make this quote-unquote easy for multinational groups, right? right. So we're going to allow you to choose your source of data, and you could choose multiple sources of data for the same report. You could, if you really wanted to, use multiple sources of data for the same data point, just different countries. And so, so people did that I think they had to in some circumstances, say in the acquisition context, you think the conglomerates, you've got a lot of different sources of data within the four corners of the same report. And that made it very hard to use as a practical matter, but easier, and there's no doubt, I mean, not easy, but it is easier than having to reconcile, say, something that is a financial services company within one portion of your org chart with a retail or a different regulated industry in a different portion of your org chart, which is kind of a mishmash. Well, that's not going to help you to use a mishmash. So that's the hard part. 
But as you know, this hard part may be well worth sitting down and getting it right. If you're just doing the private country-by-country report stuff, even if you had the mishmash, you at least had audit to kind of explain yourself. I don't think you're going to have that luxury, well, if you call audit a luxury. The stakes are definitely higher to make sure your country-by-country information, in particular jurisdictions, either for public reporting or for reliance on the safe harbor, it needs to be reflective of the proper financial reporting consistent with the applicable financial statements. So while you could have used other sources or other methodologies before now, the authorities are going to look closer at how you pulled the data. So final message, get your freaking CBC right. Okay, so tax authorities are doubling down on the country-by-country reports, and the next few years will be busy ones. No rest for the wicked or for the weary. And in the meantime, be good. Stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time.